Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, we want to make sure you stay connected. So follow, like our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. So if you missed the on-air broadcast, you can always go back to SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, tune in, wherever you get your podcast, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, um, especially for our, we've, we've been really shouting out our Chicago uh, listeners. Uh, that's kind of the wonderful thing about streaming is that you, you know, you get some of everywhere. But tonight is going to be really, really important for our Chicago crowd. So Chicago family tonight, we have in studio uh, and this is we're going to have to make a distinction uh, distinction here. As a matter of fact, uh, one has been made already. So we have two Josephs. We have Joe and Joey. <laughs> we have Chicago's inspector general, uh, Joe Ferguson, who is actually in the middle. Uh, he's uh, into his third term uh, in that position. And we have joining him, uh, Joe. Do you mind, Joey? Joey, Joey Lapari. Uh, he is Deputy Inspector General for Public Safety. And the two both have uh, extensive backgrounds in public service, um, uh, in, in um, uh, law, you know, uh, litigation uh, from a federal standpoint uh, with, uh, with Joe. And uh, Joey, you were uh, with uh, New York. Exactly, yep. Yeah. So uh, we welcome you both to Radio Islam. Thank you. Great to have you to be here. Thanks for being here. So one of the things that we always really enjoy doing is is taking the time to to educate uh, our our audience, and you, you it's something you might take for granted living in a city like Chicago your whole life, and you think everybody knows all the uh, all the nuts and bolts and gears you know of of city government, and that is not the case. <laughs> so uh, so since we have you here today, uh, first off, uh, Joe, let me ask you. In your position as the inspector general, could you give us an overview as to what your uh, responsibilities are, what the office um, uh, does? Sure. Um, the office is, has been around since 1989 in various forms, and right now it's about 100 people strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's part of city government, but as with all inspectors general, it's a separate part of the government that it has oversight responsibility. And over by oversight, it doesn't mean we control anything. It means that We are investigating and evaluating just what your government is doing and how well it is doing it, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do that through a couple of things, through investigations of misconduct and wrongdoing, and that could be administrative, um, violations of personnel rules and that sort of stuff. And the more serious stuff is huge program fraud, millions of dollars of taxpayer money, grant money. Um, that could result in criminal prosecutions. Um, so two types of investigations. And then the other side of the house is um, doing audits and reviews of government operations. And most inspectors general have both of those functions in them. This is how the federal government works with, with IGs. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that when you're investigating, you kind of need to know a little bit of the context, but investigators don't get into the weeds on policies and controls. Their eyes on the prize, find the wrongdoing, recover the money, right? Right. 
Um, and But when they see problems with how something's operated, they tell the folks on the other side. And then they'll do a review of, the, of an operation, and they'll come up with all sorts of findings, no controls, not the right policies, you know, we're not making good use of money. And sometimes when they're doing their work, they see signs of wrongdoing. They throw it over to the investigation side. The public safety unit is the newest part of the office, mm-hmm. um, and it was formed uh, in the wake of the um, the reviews of the Chicago Police Department conducted by both the Police Accountability Task Force, um, of which Lori Lightfoot was the chair and I was one of the members, um, and our office supported, and the Department of Justice Pattern and Practice Review of CPD. And both of those bodies recommended that there be created a component within the inspector general's office that does nothing but review the practices and operations of the police department and the police accountability mechanisms, specifically COPA, which does investigations of shootings, the Bureau of Internal Affairs, which does other forms of investigation of police misconduct. And one other component of our larger operation is uh, also a new a new component, an information portal um, that um, – uh, what we essentially have created is a huge data warehouse drawing from all sorts of databases across the city, mm-hmm. and we have put that into visualizations that, that is interactive, that the public can go on and find out information about their city, their city government, what it's composed of, um, operations and activities of the police department, um, and that is something that we're gradually building out, but hopefully through putting that information out there, demystify a lot of city government, and make accessible information that right now, unfortunately, too much of the public has to file FOIAs and, you know, get the stiff arm from government. Hmm. And, uh, Joey, can you tell us a bit about uh, this new office, uh, General, uh, I'm sorry, the public safety, uh, and and how you're going about making sure that it's it's effective? Sure. So uh, after the release of the Laquan McDonald uh, videotape and the – uh, the mayor's task force, the DOJ review, uh, as Joe said, uh, this office was created. Um, our main charge uh, is to look at uh, the operations of the police department, uh, civilian office of police accountability, and uh, police uh, board. The way we do that is through sort of through two main mechanisms: our evaluations, where we uh, we have a teams of people who uh, take on a particular. Um, policy, um, particular um, set of procedures within the department, um, say, are, are a big program. Uh, and they, you know, spend months reviewing it, uh, getting access to uh, data that uh, so that is produced from that program, uh, getting all the policies and procedures from the department, and then making an assessment uh, whether those uh, policies, procedures, and the training that's associated with them uh, is sufficient, effective, uh, and efficient, and produces a good outcome. Um, we also have an inspections unit within our section. Um, so the evaluations, the sort of the big program reviews, inspections, um, it's a little bit smaller team, but they have a very specific role, which is to review closed individual investigations against uh, that are filed, uh, that are the outcomes of complaints that are filed with BIA or with COPA. So e- each of those agencies do their investigations. They come to a finding, they close the case, once it's closed, we take a look at it, look for two things. One, for any material deficiencies in the in that specific investigation. Mm-hmm. And if we do see any, we can recommend that it be uh, reopened uh, and reinvestigated. Um, and then we also uh, look for patterns, particular patterns, uh, trends, troubling practices in those 
individual investigations. So if we see um, a, a troubling trend uh, around a particular, uh, the enforcement of a particular policy or um, a particular uh, investigator's sort of a way of doing uh, his investigations, we can um, identify that and make uh, recommendations to address those sort of larger problems. Okay, so it, it's more I- evaluation-based as opposed to um, uh, making a decision. As uh, the, the decision still rests with uh, chain of command uh, with regard to any findings that you may present. Correct, yeah, both in terms of uh, our, our policy recommendations um, and our recommendations uh, to, you know, reassess a case. Um, ultimately, the, the police superintendent uh, is responsible for making those decisions. Um, our, we make recommendations. Those recommendations uh, are publicized, uh, and so that brings uh, some attention to the issues uh, and uh, informs the public. Um, we were In the earlier part of the conversation, uh, you were sort of alluding to the importance of education. I think yeah. a big role that we play, that the, the public safety section plays, um, and that the term demystifying has been used uh, already. And so, that, you know, there's a lot about policing um, programs, about policing data that we don't know, that, that the public doesn't know about. And so a big part of our role, I think, uh, particularly when you have these um, controversial issues like uh, gang database, uh, these, these kinds of things, where uh, the public needs to know what exactly it is before we can even have a discussion about what should be done. We all need to know what exactly it is, and so our role is to try to provide that sort of uh, that level of, of of insight, of education, of transparency to the systems, to the to the programs, to the data, so that then we can have a common narrative and discuss what the solutions should be going forward. I, I think on the, the the subject of the gang database, you had Mick Dumkey on in, in, back in August. And, That's right. And Mick did uh, extensive reporting on the gang database, and uh, so did Annie Sweeney of the Tribune. Mm-hmm. And um, many of the questions that the, you and Mick were sort of raising and going back and forth on are the very questions that um, Joey's unit will be reporting on when they issue a, a report on the gang database sometime early next year. Okay. All right. Um, with regard to um, removing some of the obstacles uh, that the uh, Chicago residents have as far as getting information uh, so that we don't have to you know, go through so many FOIAs, um, is that an ongoing process or is um, where, where would you say you're at right now in that process? So um, uh, the reference there is to our new information portal that went live right. on August 20th. And there's right now there's three types of three types or categories of information. One is um, a different configuration of budget information. So, you know, exactly, you know, where money is being spent in the city in terms of programs. Second is uh, related to sort of the employment composition of the city. Where do people work, race, gender, tenure, all sorts of information. Where do they live? Um, And, uh, you know, a a real grabber for a lot of people is um, the fact that um, uh, 50% of the Chicago police department live in five wards. There's 50 wards in the city. And um, uh, most of your viewers would be able to say off the top of their head three or four of those wards. Bridgeport. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go further southwest. I think I know know three of them. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But here's the thing is everyone, these are things that are sort of elephants in the room and people kind of know it, but they don't actually know it because they don't have the data to tell them. Um, But the third realm is particularly 
with respect to um, uh, public safety and the police department. So uh, an example of, of one realm where there's a whole bunch of dashboards is um, our, our visualizations and dashboards relating to um, uh, investigative stop reports. Okay. Previously, stop and frisk, right. okay, which uh, the city, pursuant to an agreement with the ACLU, changed the form. Those forms sort of yield a whole bunch of data. Well, on our website, you can actually see the patterns of where the stops are being made, who's making the stops, who's being stopped in terms of gender, um, race, ethnicity, and various locations. Another, another type of data or field of data that you can see is um, the complaint history with respect to all officers. There's some constraints that we have on it. There are some if folks like Mick filing the FOIAs. Mm-hmm. Takes them, you know, a year, two years to get that information. And what they can report on is what is given in the FOIA. Sure. We have access to a whole lot more sort of paralleling and or sort of horizontal data that allows us to validate, verify, and put out a much more complete and comprehensive and accurate picture of all of these things that for everybody else, you just sort of have to chase around the information. And hopefully um, uh, what we get, and go to igchicago.org, and you will see the information portal up there. Um, And um, uh, if there are things that you would like to see up there, Mm -hmm. um, there's a feedback um, uh, feature have the tell us what it is that you know that is that this this particular dashboard it got me close but there's some additional information can you put that up what about this other subject out there mm-hmm. and we'll put that into the hopper and and and, and figure that out but we really want to have a feedback loop going from right. the public so that we are we are we are essentially answering front end um uh, or providing the facts front end so that we do not debate the facts. What we debate and discuss are the solutions yeah. to what the facts clearly tell us. Correct, correct. Well, I think that, that is a, uh, that's, that's a wonderful stance to take, you know, to, uh, to provide some transparency and to provide uh, a platform for people to be able to, to look and see what's going on. Um, so nobody likes to be watched, right? That's right. <laughs> that, you know, everybody... Uh, you know, people get uh, squeamish or that they are resentful of having somebody that's holding them accountable, right? And that's primarily what, uh, as I'm listening, that's what your office uh, is tasked with doing. Um, what are some of the What are some of the challenges aside from people's tendency to not want to be, you know, uh, looked at? Uh, what are some of the challenges that come with this job? I mean, you're in your third your, your third term uh, in this position. What are some of the challenges? Um, it, 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 working right off of your lead-in there, um, uh, city workers, city contractors have a have a duty under the law and in the contracts to cooperate with our investigations, to cooperate with our with our audits. Um, cooperation people aren't necessarily wanting to cooperate, and so there's a little bit of back and forth that needs to go. You get the stiff arm, and you sort of have to persist. Right. Um, and and this is one of the reasons why the information portals, it, it, I think, is important. Is rather than simply pursue information in the context of a specific project, let's get it out there. If it's public information, let's get it out there, and then let's really drill into the places where we know there's problems. So. Um, that's one aspect of it, the, and, and, and there is a fear factor. Um, the other is um, the very reason why it's so great for you to have us here, which is the public doesn't know that there is a part of government 
that actually is working for them, not with the objective necessarily of doing the gotcha thing, but a feedback loop to make it constantly better. People don't associate government and government leaders Mm -hmm. with, you know, um, being transparent and being in a mode of acknowledging weaknesses and improving them over time. They're sort of more in the in sort of the duck and the dodge and the avoid and the spin. And and what we find is the more that people know we exist, the more that people call into us with their information and see that we actually act on the information. Again, igchicago.org, 866-448-4754 is our is our hotline and people will take your calls. Um but uh, it, is, it, it, it emboldens them in the notion that maybe actually government is there to work for them. And um, so getting that education, getting that information out there about our existence is another real challenge. Mm. Uh, Joey, did you yes. have anything that you wanted to add from that? Uh, you came from uh, New York's uh, Inspector General's office. Right. Uh, and have you, uh, not to, you know, because, you know, we realize that Chicago is uh, – You've accepted Chicago as the best. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so we don't we don't want to uh, uh, cast any shadows on, on New sure. York at all. But um, uh, is there a difference in the culture uh, in the offices that, that you've noticed from uh, New York to Chicago? Sure. I mean, I think the the biggest thing um, is is this uh, information portal uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, we've been framing it as uh, public education and, and and access to information for the public, but. You know, we we also use this internally. We, you know, this is a tool um, for my uh, section, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, it's actually a pretty rare thing to have a oversight agency um, of, of law enforcement have direct back end data access to the IT systems. Um, so, in my you know previous places I worked um, in New York City, Syracuse, uh, you know, you're 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 sort of dependent on the police department to provide. Uh, documents to you and, and information and data. Um, that's you, if you don't have back-end data access, you right. have to ask them for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that can uh, lead to delays. Uh, you know, the, sometimes by the time you get all the documents you needed, and then the, the uh, find the the ones they they forget they didn't give you, then you correct that and you get the get everything you 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 asked for. Mm-hmm. Um, you're nine months past when the data was created. Um, and so you want your data to be uh, as up-to-date, as recent as possible. And so having this direct back-end access to the data systems allows us to pull up this information. Uh, you know, it's at our fingertips uh, in the format that we, we need it, uh, and we're not dependent on, on waiting on uh, the city agency to produce it for us. And so that's sort of a sea change uh, for me. I mean, that's for, for, for those of us who do this work and try to get these reports out um, in, a, in a, as timely of a fashion as possible, uh, having that direct access to the data uh, is just huge uh, yeah that that sounds like that would be just a tremendous headache to have to wait for the folks that you might be not necessarily investigating but um you know you, you're observing and you need reports and you have to wait for them to give you uh the reports uh the, that, the data about that that your reports are based on absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that 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 is um yeah, I yeah, certainly so, wouldn't want to have that type of a, a quagmire. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, that was really one of the big things that uh, attracted me to, to come in here uh, when I learned about this, this information portal that Joe was building. Okay. Um, and, 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 and Joey is missing an opportunity to, uh, to sell the fact that he has very deep ties to Chicago that precedes him coming here for the job. Ah. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I, lived, I actually lived in Chicago for 10 years. Uh, from, oh, you did? Yeah, 2002 okay. to 2012. Um, right. I came here for grad school, um, went to UIC, studied uh, African-American history, did my, worked on my uh, dissertation on the relationship between African-Americans and the police here in Chicago. So mm-hmm. this was the city that I sort of cut my teeth on these issues in, and it's, it's why I went into the field after sort of studying what happened here in the, in, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm. Uh, so to come back, uh, to have the opportunity to, to come back and work on these issues in a capacity uh, where I, I can uh, hopefully make a difference uh, is very, has been very satisfying. Well, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, you, you didn't happen to take a class uh, by, uh, with uh, David um, uh, Stovall, did you? I know David, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we were both at UIC at the same okay. time. Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I didn't actually take the class with him, but uh, yeah. we were sort of in the same world. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, Joe, can you tell us um, – with regard to, uh, and I'm going to, you probably have asked, answered this question before, uh, but with regard to Chicago police, uh, not Chicago police, Chicago um, public schools, mm-hmm. was your office involved with the um, the previous, let me see, go back to superintendents, I think, uh, where there was um, some allegations of corruption. Robert Bird Bennett, are we talking about? Yes. Yeah. So, so um, uh, a, a, a sort of another bit of um, framing the the civic firmament. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to tell people, picture Chicago, picture the solar system in your mind. Mm-hmm. And the sun is the mayor. And the mayor exerts gravitational force on all of these planets that are circling, but each one of those planets is a different body of government. Only one of them is the actual city government of the city of Chicago. Another one is CPS, which is a completely separate government agency. So when things are going good, the mayor takes credit. When things are going bad, the mayor says, that's another governmental (laughs) body. I can't do anything about that. But the same thing for the park district, the same thing for the CTA, all of these things that we associate as part of the city of Chicago government mm-hmm. are actually these separate governmental bodies. And the reason that I say that is each one of them has an IG. And so there is a CPS IG, and it's a 20-person, now 30-person office that does the same sort of thing that we do with respect to the core of city government that that actually was the one that identified the fraud, started to work it up, brought it to the federal authorities, and resulted in the prosecution. Well... That is uh, definitely a fun fact. Uh, so we know we have several, four different IGs. You have, you have, you have about yeah, five, diff- five, maybe even more IGs in the Chicago area. Now, are there moments where you all uh, have to come together, where you, you know, you, you kind of talk shop, you, you trade best practices, or uh... there's a so there, there's a there's a national association of IGs, and there's a, there's an Illinois chapter because there's so many IGs in the state of Illinois. Yeah. Even and, and, you know, we have a corruption problem in Illinois and in Chicago, and somebody could say, well, the IGs aren't doing a very good job if we still have all that corruption. But part of the reason we have the IGs is because of the history of, of corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Um, we get together sort of at kind of an association level, and, and we talk shop. And where there is a link-up of wrongdoing from one to another, we refer that information, and, and at times we can work coordinately. Mm. Okay. Now, um, I was looking at, uh, at your bio, and, and folks, you can go, if you go to the website, uh, give us the website again. www.igchicago.org. Okay, if you go there, you get to see all about these great folks that are, uh, that are serving uh, the residents of Chicago. And uh, so you did a few, you were, fi- you were with the United States uh, Attorney's Office for 15 years. Yes. Uh, 
Uh, can you talk about how that experience has, um, have you carried anything from, from that time into this experience uh, as the IG? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big thing for me, uh, a, a big takeaway from those years of experience and a lot of the work that I did had to do with huge prosecution and investigation of huge government program fraud mm -hmm. is government operates in very disembodied ways. And what I what I mentioned before about having investigations and audits in one shop, I, w I would put together big investigations of massive fraud, and along the way would identify, we would and with the with the FBI, you know, uh, agents and whatnot, we'd identify all sorts of issues in the government program that actually made it possible for that fraud to occur, and mm -hmm. we would take that to the department and say, you've got some issues here you might want to look at. And the response that we generally get is, thank you very much. You do your job. We'll do our job, right? <laughs> and it's that sort of compartmentalization and a little bit of everybody just sort of taking care of themselves um, and not sort of uh, animating themselves to the higher purpose of what's the best for the public. That that was one of the big takeaways that I uh, that I had from the work that I did. One, two. Other big takeaway is there's really great people who do dumb things and end up in jail, and there's really awful people who are really smart and know how to stay on the right right side of the line, even though they're doing awful stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's the ability to look at how programs operate, because sometimes going after somebody criminally isn't going to get you there. But looking at what makes it possible for them to do all those awful things that are on the right side of the criminal law, right, that's how we sort of fix the culture of corruption that exists in places like Chicago and Illinois and Louisiana, where Joey's from. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, somehow I've managed to live in, like, the three most corrupt regions of the country for my whole life, New Orleans, Chicago, and New York. I don't know how that happened. Uh, uh, did you have the opportunity to, opportunity to uh, serve the residents of New Orleans? I did, no. I, I left Louisiana, um, you know, uh, after um, – undergrad came to uh chicago for grad school and uh i've always said i wanted to end up going back there uh, and there is a uh, ig's office in new orleans um, and, okay. and a, a civilian oversight agency there so maybe one day um i could return there retire back home uh, yeah so when it comes to <clears throat> audits uh and looking at uh at programs looking at structures uh as one of the things that you look at opportunities for malfeasance <laughs> Yeah, and and that's and I use the word controls a couple okay. times. And controls are 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 sort of the the procedures internally mm -hmm. that make sure yet money's not walking out the door. That make sure that there is sort of these these quality assurance and feedback loops, and that you're catching this sort of stuff. And especially at the local government level, quite often the controls are what's missing. You have the right you have the right sort of legislation with the right objectives, but how it's all implemented, if it isn't done with sort of good administrative controls, you have the opportunity for lots of, of mis, uh, misconduct or just plain waste. One example that sort of spans uh, uh, the, the world of the public safety IG and, and, our shot and, the, and the IG's office generally, um, about a year ago, we, we issued uh, an audit report on the Chicago Police Department's overtime practices, okay? And what we saw was this welter of, of, of sort of ways that overtime mm -hmm. could be generated that had no controls whatsoever. So no one was really watching to see 
who is working the overtime and for what and for how much. And the consequence, you know, by our estimates was upwards of $50 million a year in waste. Wow. And and we have we have a never-ending debate in Chicago about whether we need more officers or whether hiring more officers um, is actually an overall burden to the taxpayers and we're better off paying the existing officers to work overtime. But when you see, and then you add to that the cost of, of, of reform, police reform that's coming, mm-hmm. and when you see in one aspect of operations a lack of controls that results in upwards of $50 million of waste, you say, that's our money right there to improve. That's our money to make things better. Mm. And in the public safety realm, uh, when, we, when we talk uh, you know, about um, this area, one of the things we'll be looking at uh, you know, re- in a regular fashion is the role of supervisors um, in uh, sort of managing uh, these problems. Uh, I think you know, when we talk about police oversight and police accountability, a lot of time we, talk, we, we focus on the patrol officers uh, and so their individual acts of misconduct. But I think what Joe is, is getting at um, and what we'll be focusing on in a lot of our reports are the, the sort of middle manage- this, this role for middle management um, in sort of regulating creating these controls, being aware of what's going on, and, and, and taking action when they see something uh, that, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, and so when you can focus on those and not just on the sort of lowest-level patrol officers, that's where you can really sort of see a return on your investment in terms of uh, the, the reforms you're, you're uh, advocating for and the, the policy and uh, training improvements that you'd like to see. Mm. Uh, one other question. You mentioned uh, the old, you know, you bring a recommendation and you're met with, uh, you do your job and I do my, you know, previous um, yeah. uh, uh, career. Um, has a recommendation from the IG's office ever been um, received in that fashion? You sure. know, well, we just, we'll just, okay, thanks a lot. There's, so uh, one thing uh, for you and for your listeners to understand is, except with a limited number of investigations, everything we do, we make public. Okay. So when we're doing a review or an evaluation or an audit of a program, what happens is we have our findings with our recommendations that's in a report. We give it to the the agency or department that's the subject of it. They have a certain amount of time under the law within which they have to respond, and they have to say whether they're accepting our findings and accepting our recommendations. And they tell us that. It goes into the final version of the report, and we publish it. So it's all out in the public. So if they're going to say no, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 that in and of itself becomes the story. And for many of the, the things that we do, not only do we issue the report, but we'll do a follow-up in 6, 9, 12 months to see whether or not the, the department or agency has actually done what it said it would do in response to our report. So we also recognize that we don't actually do the work ourselves. We don't know everything about, you know, the inner workings of a department. And we may re- make recommendations, and they may say, look, that makes sense based on your findings, but there's other things that are involved here that you didn't factor in, so we're going to disagree with you. We respect that. The point here, though, overall is it's all out there publicly. Therefore, it's fully accountable. So if if someone's going to reject our findings and recommendation, they're probably going to have to answer for it through media inquiries. Mm. Okay. Joe, Joey, it has been a pleasure talking to both of you. Um, Folks, IGChicago.org. That simple. IGChicago.org. Hope you've learned something. I have. 
<laughs> so we're going to uh, take a break and we'll be back in a moment. This is Radio Slam on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are tuning in now, that means you missed the first half. So you can go back and check that out wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. We're on SoundCloud, Google Play, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts. So subscribe, rate and review and stay connected with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. I am joined, as usual, by the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Baig. Assalamu alaikum. Um, uh, we were looking at uh, some really unfortunate happenings, uh, some things that continue to happen uh, around the country, uh, but right here, right outside of Chicago, there is uh, one of the suburbs, uh, Midlothian. You may have heard about this, but there was a, a young man, Jamel Roberts, Jamel Robertson, excuse me, Jamel Robertson who was killed by uh, Midlothian police. Now, what makes this really, really stand out is the fact that this young man was uh, an aspiring police officer. He was actually, uh, he's actually working security, and he was subduing uh, someone that was, uh, that had just, I think, committed a shooting. And the Midlothian police, you know, as he was, uh, subduing the individual came up, and the end result is that this young man was killed by police. Yes, yeah, so this uh, this is happening in the Chicago area uh, a little over a month after the the verdict in Laquan McDonald, mm-hmm. the whole the whole incident, the trial, um, right outside Chicago, not within city limits technically. Right. Um, but it's worth walking through kind of the events that took place. So this was, I think, Saturday night, late Saturday night, going into a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamel Robertson, Roberson. Yeah. He was a security guard. Actually, it ha- turns out his his goal, his dream, or whatever, was to be a police officer. Yeah. Um, he's 26 years old, has a little baby, and another on the way, I think. Um, so what happened was he was working security at this club or this bar in Robbins, Robbins, Illinois. Okay. 
and uh, something happened. Now details have been. I think Tribune found out that the Tribune found out that the bar wasn't actually uh, licensed to serve alcohol. They lost their license or something like that, which is kind of irrelevant to the story. But anyway, they brought that up. Right. Um, so he's working security at this place in Robbins. Some people leave and come back. Something happens where some of the uh, attendees start fighting and shooting. Mm-hmm. Some sh- shooting happens at the bar, I think, right. or an attempted shooting. So the suspects leave the bar. Jamil Roberson, <coughs> he chases after one of them. Multiple, I don't know. He ca- he catches one of them. Okay, he chases out. He catches one of them, and he has the suspect in, in the shooting like subdued on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has that kind. I'm assuming it's kind of that police maneuver where they. Uh, kind of tie up your arm behind your back, and mm-hmm. so he's on the suspect's on the ground. He's on top of the suspect, with his knee into his back, mm-hmm. and I do believe he has his Jamil has his firearm pulled and pointed at the suspect to make sure the guy doesn't run away or whatever until the cops get there. All right. So at this point, this is the scene when, and there are witnesses at the scene as well. This is the scene when police arrive, and it's not police from Robbins; it's police from. Midlothian. Neighboring, neighboring Midlothian. Right. Um, it does appear that the officer who shot Jimmy Robertson is white. So the thing is, why this is so um, frightening is he's a security guard and he has the suspect in a shooting subdued like that, right? Mm-hmm. So he's waiting for the police to arrive. As soon as the police arrive, they shoot him. They shoot the security guard, Jimmy right. Robertson. Um, and he dies. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where we're at. So, the conflicting reports are coming out as far as how many times they told him to drop his weapon, or whether or not um, he the clothes he was wearing said the word security on it or not. Mm-hmm. The I think his colleagues who were security guards they say that he was his clothes did display the word security. Right on um, his hat and on his uh, yeah back of his uh, sweatshirt. I think the authorities are denying that at this point. Right, um, but still, I mean, the information out is still churning and, and things are still coming out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the tragedy: a young man who's doing the right thing. He's mm-hmm. being a security guard. He wants to be a police officer. Um, he has a suspect on the ground, subduing him, and is for lack of a better word immediately we don't know whether it's five seconds ten seconds or whatever but more or less immediately shot by the police right and uh, of course what we're used to is when these types of things happen when, when shootings happens we're, we're used to uh an immediate report ranks closed uh and it's justified mm-hmm. that's that's what we're used to uh we have not seen we've never seen uh an outcome where uh where somebody says, well, we made a mistake, right? That's, that's never the case. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing is that the gun that he was holding, it's also, uh, it's also mentioned that it's possibly that he had taken that firearm from the suspect mm. and he was holding, Maybe. you know, yeah. on him, right? So that's mm. what one of the, um, I think one of the, the witnesses uh, has stated. Uh, now, they're also saying that they had given a command him to drop the weapon or whatever and the it's being uh contested 
because I guess one of his uh, uh, co-workers or a witness that was there says that he never heard them say anything. Right. So you got two things. You have uh, the, the statement that, you know, we gave a command and it was ignored uh, and he was just wearing black clothing with nothing, mm-hmm. with no indica- indicators that he was performing um, in a security uh, function. Yeah. Right. So what I'm what I'm looking at, uh, I think this is also interesting in light of um, some legislation that our outgoing our outgoing governor Rauner uh, that he signed back uh, at the end of August. Now there was a uh, an investigation by the Better Government Association and WBEZ into failed oversight, uh, and this was uh, specifically aimed at dozens of suburban Cook County shooting cases, and. The reason I think that this is important is because when it's a Chicago, uh, it's a Chicago shooting, right? It's you know you got a lot of folks that are involved with it, and most of the times, most of the times, uh, these people if they survive, they're settling with corporation counsel, right? And with that, there is a um, there is a non disclosure agreement, right? So nobody talks about it; they get the money, and it's kind of swept under the under the rug. In these suburban cases, not only, uh, as a matter of fact, they, they looked at 113 shootings uh, over a 13-year period, and they noted that not a single suburban officer was fired, uh, disciplined, or even retrained. Right, And that's, that's, that's crazy. You think about 113 shootings. And I think this falls right in line with that. It would, it would have to be looked at, like, how, what's going to be the res- uh, response? Uh, we know there's a light shine on it simply because of the proximity towards uh, the, the, the the Jason Van Dyke um, uh, decision. Mm-hmm. But what's going to be the, the real outcome? Uh, we don't know yet, but I do believe uh, his mother has filed a lawsuit oh, good very for her. recently, today or yesterday or something like that. Yeah, yeah, good for her. And you know what? This also... For me, uh, and I think we should all feel uh, a sense of um, we should all feel a sense of loss, right? Because as you mentioned, this is a young man who was looking to join a police force. This was yeah. his goal, right? This is a young father, um, and who was also acting in a way to save other lives, right? He's protecting other people, only to end up on the uh, on on the wrong end of responding officers. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, a firearm. Yeah, exactly. Now that actually, you're getting into the reason now why this is also being elevated to a national. It's not a debate yet, but um, it's it's significant nationally. Mm-hmm. It's because he was the good guy, right? Yeah. Um. So people are talking about this. The the NRA, right? The NRA's big slogan is what. The only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. A good guy with a gun. Yeah. Now, here is this good guy with a gun, right? Mm-hmm. He is a security guard. He wants to be a cop. He's a law-abiding citizen, right? right. He's trying to chase people who are uh, suspect in this shooting, whatever, at the bar, this dispute. Mm-hmm. And he basically does everything right. Now, when the police arrive at a scene, at the scene, he's here's this good guy with a gun. What happens to him? Mm-hmm. He gets killed immediately. Right. Um, 
And you know what? That also brings up, and I've seen um, a few posts where people are asking uh, for those who are legally authorized to carry, uh, concealed carry in, in, uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. says, do you worry now, seeing what has happened right here, are you worried about being the, uh, the victim of, um, you know, of, of police fire? Yeah, and the answer is very simple but um, very sad. I think it's going to be along racial lines. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure if it's a quote-unquote regular white guy, mm-hmm. they would feel pretty safe. Yeah. But depending on the time and the place and the situation, and people of color will probably not feel that security. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, we also had another shooting, which sparked a lot of outrage and protest um, over the summer, which was, uh, what was the brother? Um, Harith, over right. in the South Shore area. Mm-hmm. Um, he had, I believe he had a, he had a concealed carry um, permit. Uh, now, the details around that, uh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth on this, but, uh, but, but the fact is also another individual who was, you know, killed by police. And I think... There is a there's a fear that goes along with being a person of color and being armed when unfortunately the officer happens the responding officer happens to be a white police officer. Yeah. And and I think until we uh find a way to, you know, address that address that fear, and I don't know if there's if there's training, uh if it is uh, uh sensitizing uh, folks. Well, I don't think it's, it's at one end either. I think it's that fear, which is irrational, yeah. uh, is at both ends. I mean, it should be irrational. Yeah. But it's at the, it's, it's coming from the police officer's end too. What if a police officer arrives at the scene and sees an African American man with a gun? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. going through their mind? Yeah, like look mm-hmm. at Tamir Rice, for example. Yeah. It's a little kid with a BB gun. Right. But as soon as the officer gets there, what's going through his mind? We don't know. Or the the fella in, um, where was it at? But he was in a Walmart. He was walking around. He picked up uh, he picked up a rifle or something, and he's just walking around with it. Yeah. Right? It's out in the open for people to pick up, examine, and, and hold, and look at the sights and all of that. And a police officer comes in and, and kills him. Wow. Right? So there is a, a, a serious problem. With being with being armed, and being a person of color, mm-hmm. there's 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 a real you, you know you're throwing the dice. Um, so whether you are allowed to have it legally, or not, the assumption appears to be that you are in illegal possession of that firearm, or that you are um, you're in the commission of some act of uh, violence or a crime, and that's how you're responded to. So. Aside from the lawsuit, right, the mother is absolutely right to, you know, to uh, to file a lawsuit. And unfortunately, the presumption is going back to Laquan McDonald, because we look at what uh, Jason Van Dyke, his his initial response was he and along with the other uh, officers who wrote up reports supporting his 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 uh, uh, his view of events, which later the, the dash cam proved was was not true. Um, you know, they, they sided with him. So the presumption is, unfortunately, that our police are going to simply do what they can to, you know, to skate. They're not really looking to be accountable 
they're not going to say if you know if it was a mistake we don't we don't we don't expect them to say they made a mistake yeah um people have this notion i'm glad you mentioned the the van dyke trial yeah um people have this notion of big city cops as being this kind of impenetrable wall or what's that called the blue wall or whatever Mm -hmm. um i would say having grown up in the suburbs that suburban cops Mm -hmm. can be just as um what's the word like territorial or just as loyal to each other and having each other's backs uh protecting each other from being accused of wrongdoing and so on just as much as any big city cop um when you brought up the van dyke trial that reminds me of the really the unconscionable statement that came from the fraternal order of the police right after the verdict yeah there was one that was just unconscionable then i think like an hour later or two hours later they came out with like a more official statement that was like a little bit more you know toned down and a little bit more professional but still the first one that came out was just unbelievable i mean the language and yeah the angry fella vile and yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, basically, the yeah, they were saying that um, the Van Dyke verdict mm-hmm. was basically this huge misjustice, and how are we going to be able to do our jobs now, and so on. And it was just really weird. So it reminds me, yes, there's there is a um, like a brotherhood type of you know mentality out there that uh, you know, like the ancient Arabs used to say. Mm-hmm stand with your brother when he's right and when he's wrong yeah right <laughs> uh after islam came that same statement was used by the prophet so that's when peace be upon him to mean something different which is if your brother is right support him if your brother is wrong support him by telling him he's wrong right right but the ancient the vendettas and blood feuds and stuff tribal vendettas that they used to have mm-hmm. the context was st- whether your brother is right or wrong you got to have his back, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that that tribal mentality uh, really permeates still in many different settings. And, you know, I'll say this. I don't really think that um, there's a real difference between the suburban police forces and uh, your big city police. As a matter of fact, I think they might be a bit more hard-nosed. Right, it could be. Um, yeah. Because they're, they're, they're smaller. Yeah, group. they're operating from a position of a lot of times feeling like they're looked down on. I think where they, you know, they want to really assert themselves, especially if you go through some of these, uh, some of these uh, little towns where there's nothing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really a matter of asserting their authority, uh, letting, letting you know that they're in control. Uh, and of course, I'm speaking from my own personal uh, experience and observation, but I, I think that blue wall, it is, uh, it exists in every layer of law enforcement because, yeah, it's it's not about, you know, as the Quran tells us, to stand firmly for justice, even even if it's against ourselves. Yeah, they're only, they've demonstrated more often than not that they will uh, enforce the peace or or, or be about justice. As long as it does not implicate themselves or one of their uh, one of their their brethren, yeah, and I think a lot of police officers would have a problem with um, this notion of a blue wall. They, I, I've you know seen people work very hard to try to deny you know there's nothing like this. Yeah, I would say that it's not even limited to just law enforcement. It's just a natural um, 
kind of mentality that happens, a group think, a group mentality yeah. that when you're, you know, have this close camaraderie with someone, you're with them all the time, you're doing the same job, you have the same goals. It's a natural tendency to have this, to put up this wall, this mm-hmm. impenetrable wall that, you know, we're all together. And if uh, one of us is in trouble, we're all going to try to cover for that person. I don't think it's something even limited to law enforcement. I think it's just a human phenomenon that, that as we know, as Muslims, as believers, we have to try to uh, work against that tendency mm-hmm. of that immoral tendency and, and do the right thing. Yeah. But it exists, I think, in many aspects of life. I agree. I mean, if you look at, uh, just look at the sports world, you know, uh, if you look at any team, any professional sports team, right, the the idea of when they step on the field that, I mean, they may not be, it may not be bloodless. I mean, well, unless we're talking soccer. Well, mm-hmm. soccer fans, you know, they they are the most hardcore, you know, they actually, yeah, they they, they come to real blows. But uh, but my point really is uh, to, to, you know, that I agree. That that is something that we see throughout uh, just just being human beings. But the problem is that, when you couple that tendency along with authority, with power, with the ability to, you know, we, we believe that we're free, we have liberty. But if a police officer comes up to you and asks you to, um, you know, for your for your identification, mm-hmm. right, in the in the course of an investigation, or you know, th- our police have the, they can legally detain you, mm-hmm. right, x amount of hours. They, you know, you you think you're free until you come across. A police officer who wants to assert their authority, so that type of uh, human tendency in in the hands of um, of folks who have such broad uh, uh, powers, it can be it, it's life changing. So and yeah. so it has to be looked at in a different uh, in a different light. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. That power aspect, that authority. Of course, like you said, they have the police officer has such broad powers that they can detain you uh, without even you being convicted of a crime, right? Yeah. Because that's the pre-trial process. They can detain you, they can arrest you, and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree one hundred percent that that power aspect, and then the fact that they can kill you potentially. Yeah. That adds a whole new dimension to it. Yeah, kill you and go back to work. You know? yeah. yeah, go home to their families uh, and and write up a report and and everything is is done. Uh, and, and because of that, it's really um, it makes me go back to uh, the uh, the FOP uh, and, and the outrage. <laughs> I mean, it was it was outright disgust and disdain that was just dripping in that response to the uh, to the Van Dyke um, uh, uh, decision. Yeah, and he was like, you know, police are, you know, it's going to make us not want to do our jobs, and uh, this is a real uh, kick in the face, and you know, all of this, mm-hmm. and it's this sense of being above the law, you know, being above the law. It was the sense that if if you, the citizens, you don't give us this kind of blind, uh, like authority, mm-hmm. this broad authority, and 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 without questioning it. If we don't, if we're not able to do whatever we want, if we're not, you know, held, if we're held accountable in some way, yeah. Basically, everything that's happening in the in the trial of Van Dyke, if any of this stuff happens, we're not going to be able to protect you. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very weird 
scenario. Yeah. And I don't know if any amount of training or uh, sensitivity training or education, I don't know if that is going to change the uh, this expectation that I think is very much uh, it's unspoken uh, that you are not accountable, that you are you are you're on a different level than everybody else. Yeah. And I think what also um, really permeates that statement of the Fraternal Order of Police is this dynamic of the police and the people they are serving or mm-hmm. the people that are supposed to serve the police and the people that they are policing right. kind of being against each other right yeah that yeah. is a major problem yeah because we're not, not we're not talking about community uh, we're not talking about, uh, talking about cooperation yeah once the police become the enemies of the people or even they're seeing themselves as kind of the rivals to the people that they are policing mm-hmm. that changes the whole mentality that changes the game yeah yeah, and, and I think this is where there's been a a, a transition uh, from the days where uh, your police officers, and this is really going going back, but for some communities where the police officers lived in the community, right? Mm-hmm. And currently, that's that's not the case, uh, and I don't know if it's that's the case for uh, any other places, but for Chicago, uh, and it's like we had the Inspector General on. He says that uh, he didn't mention what communities they were, right? But he said about four different communities that our uh, Chicago police officers live in, four four wards. And I doubt that, and well, we know. We know that uh, those police officers are not just uh, stationed in those four wards. They're not assigned to those four wards. They're assigned, assigned throughout, the, throughout the city. So there's a sense of detachment. There's a sense of you work in an area, you police an area, uh, potentially that you don't you don't see it as home. You know you don't see those people there as your neighbors. You see them, like you said, potentially you may see them as as enemies. And of course, not all police officers. Not yeah. And we always have to make this this disclaimer because um, we're not picking on our police uh, as a whole. But we know plenty, all it plenty takes. Plenty of good cops out there. Yeah, plenty of good cops. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've got a lot of uh, police um, uh, uh, friends, as a matter of fact. But in general, the system, the way it's designed, it does not really allow for the type of connection that's necessary for there to be uh, sustained cooperation instead of this, this, this binary uh, existence. All right. We thank you all for joining us. Uh, and we thank our sponsor... Zakat Foundation. Thanks very much. Uh, we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host, Tariq Elamine, joined by my co-host, the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Baig. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid, and we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.